Well, as I said this morning, we continue in our introduction to this epistle, which is a fancy word for saying letter, the letter of 2 Peter. And I remind you that this is a letter written to Christians. It's written to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's written to a broad range of Christians. It's, it's a wonderful book in that it's not limited to a specific group, but it, it is speaking to Christians who are residing, as we find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. They reside as aliens scattered throughout the regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They were those who were chosen by God's love and mercy to be the recipients of of being born again to uh, uh, that living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's second letter is written about 68 AD, and I don't think any of us were around at that time, but it was three years after 1 Peter was written, and about one year before the book we just finished, the book of Jude was written. So Peter most likely wrote 2 Peter before Jude wrote his letter. What stands out to me is that it's been some 40 years since Jesus Christ had been resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven. Peter is still alive, and he's still preaching, and his message is still the same. We see the resolve of Peter to be true to Jesus Christ, the one who so often put his foot in his mouth, the one who said, I would never deny you, Lord, but did on three uh, three times. Now, 40 years later, is preaching the resurrected Christ. uh, That uh, the church of Jesus in these 40 years had spread from a little place called Jerusalem, and it had now spread throughout the entirety of the Roman Empire. It began in Jerusalem, spread through Judea, out to Samaria, and it was on its track to the uttermost parts of the earth in fulfillment of what Jesus told Peter and the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And since the inception of the church, all the way back in Acts chapter 2, around 33 AD, the chosen and the called out by God have been engaged in a battle on two fronts, and nothing's changed since this time. The first front is the front of persecution. We find in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, those familiar words to us that say, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You read the book of Acts, and some of the first things that were experienced by the church was persecution. Such persecution has ebbed and flowed. It has been less intense at times and more intense at others, but it has always been and it will always be until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the second front the church has been engaged in is the presence of false teachers. There have always been false teachers seeking to undermine and diminish the true teaching of Jesus Christ. This presence of false teaching has generally come in subtle means, not just outright blatant error, but has crept in, as we read in Jude, unnoticed, and it has become that which has infected the church. Whether it be the Judaizers who who imposed the keeping of the law in addition to faith in Christ as the path of salvation, whether that, by the way, that would be a denial of Christ alone, 
and so we, we reject that. It could be the Gnostics who taught a variety of unbiblical truths, including various degrees of secret knowledge that if you come into the church, will initiate you in and you'll get this, this secret knowledge that no one else knows. They also taught the denial of the physical and literal body and resurrection of Jesus Christ because they thought everything that's physical is evil and only the spiritual is good. So that was creeping into the church, even down to the modern denial of a six-day literal creation, the acceptance of same-sex relationships and marriages as being normal, and the increasing tendency to deny the, the sufficiency and inerrancy of the word of God is containing not only the truth, but all that is necessary, as Peter says in this letter, for life and godliness. I have nothing else to offer you. I could be like Peter who said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I will give to you. And all he had to give was Jesus Christ. That's all we have. And he is more than sufficient. He is enough. Jesus is the answer for our issues and our trials and our difficulties. It is interesting that it is the propensity towards the ensnaring grip of, of capitulating and succumbing and yielding to false teaching and the practices of false teachers that Peter now is addressing in the second letter. And again, nothing has changed. So Peter offers his readers two means, two paths by which Christians can have victory over the ever-increasing tendency to surrender to false teaching. The first is what we noted last week. Believers must be those who know the truth. Do you know the truth? There should be some amens, all right? Do you know all the truth? There's more truth that we need to know. But we notice that believers are those who know the truth. They are to be, as Peter says in this letter, knowing the wonder and certainty of their salvation in chapter 1, knowing the reality and content of false teachers in chapter 2, and knowing the coming judgment of the Lord on all those who teach and embrace false teaching in chapter 3. So the first path is be a person who is knowing the truth, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the second path that we look at this morning by which Christians may have victory over the ever-increasing tendency to surrender to false teaching is to be those who grow in the practice of godliness. The more that we practice godliness according to the word of God, the better off we are to sway off, to fend off false teaching. We see these two ideas of knowing and growing found in a couple of key verses in 2 Peter. The first is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, where we read these words. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain, and the brackets are mine here, just kind of applying this to make certain means that you know the truth. You know the reality. You've studied what God has done. You know the promises of God. So be all the more diligent to uh, to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. Now note, for as long as you what? Practice these things, that is, grow in godliness, you will never stumble. If you are doing the things God has called you to do, you will not stumble. You know God is working in you. You are doing it according to the truth. 
We see it again, of course, in the often quoted verse in this church of 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace, that is the divine enablement to be godly, and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people say, Amen. And so we find Peter concerned with believers that they are knowing and growing, knowing the truth and growing in the practice of godliness. This morning we will focus on the second path of growing in godliness. As I did last week, I'd like to begin by reading to you the letter in its entirety. This would have been how the first readers initially were introduced to Peter's letter. And since we are still doing an overview before we begin our expository look next week, I believe it will do us well to hear it again. So please be blessed by the hearing of God's word and follow along in your Bibles as I read for you 2 Peter in its entirety. 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present in you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure that you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. 
So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the day of the truth will be the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. 
a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Chapter 3. This is now, beloved, my second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up uh, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and, and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for, for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, Speaking, of them, speaking in them of things in which some are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> I need a drink of water. Ever since I came to faith in Christ as a teenager, nothing has fascinated me more than the knowledge of God. From the very beginning, I found myself asking all sorts of questions like, who is God? What is God like? How can God be known? How do I best discover him? All of these kinds of questions about the knowledge of God. Now, in later years, I realize that these are not merely questions of a young faith. These are questions that we should be continually asking Ourselves. They are, in fact, the most important questions that you will ever ask. Such questions lie at the heart of the Christian faith. 
I find too many Christians today fail to see this as clearly as they should. Because of such a lack of knowledge of God, I submit to you, churches are not what they ought to be. Because of a lack of knowledge of God, they are not worshiping God as they ought. They're not fellowshipping with one another as they ought. And they are unable to witness to the world the truth because, well, they aren't studying the knowledge of God. Beloved, only as, as we are true to the word of God and we strive to be in close fellowship with Christ, may we be delivered from the spiritual anemic Christianity that is common in our culture. I pray that not one of us in this room would desire to be anemic spiritually, that we want to be strong in the faith. We want to be resolved in knowing Christ and making him known. Beloved, it is only as the word of God impacts how we think and how we feel and how we live that we will be able to have minds filled with the knowledge of his love, with the knowledge of his will, and be enabled to live obediently then for his glory. I submit to you that one of the greatest responsibilities of being a Christian is identified for us right here in this particular text. You've heard it so many times, but now let me just put a spotlight on it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, here is one of the greatest responsibilities you and I have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You can say that to yourself in the morning. It should be part of your daily prayer. God, help me grow in the grace and the knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This would be, for some, if you want this kind of language, our prime directive. This is our chief aim. This is to be your goal. Lord, help me grow in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may say, but what of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength? What of loving our neighbor as ourselves? I say to you, such is akin to growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at our first point, knowing the truth. As we seek to know the truth, then we grow in our love for Jesus Christ. As we grow in our love for Jesus Christ, then we grow in our character, in our godliness. Every, every bit as much as Peter challenges his readers to know the truth, he also instructs them now to grow in Christ, that, which means to grow in Christ's likeness. It means to become more and more like Jesus in both word and deed. That's the goal. This morning, let me walk you through the three chapters of 2 Peter to show you this emphasis of what it means to grow in the grace of Jesus. To do this, I wish to throw a curveball at you, though. Instead of starting with chapter 1, I'm going to start with chapter 3, and we're going to work our way backwards back to chapter 1. So I'll have you follow with me, and we're basically seeking to answer the question, how are believers to grow in godliness. What does Peter tell us about growing in godliness? And the first point I would submit to you then is that we need to strive for Christ's likeness. This doesn't sound like a profound, deep thing, but you must always be striving. That we have a tendency to give up. When things get hard, we just try to find an easier path. And we are to be constantly striving for Christ's likeness. 
Now, in chapter 3, remember that Peter speaks of the coming judgment of, the, of God. And in verses 3 through 9, if you'll note them, Peter tells his readers that everything will not be just continuing as it has before. That's what the mockers say. Nothing's going to change, but we know the truth that Jesus Christ will come again. And when he comes, he will bring the judgment of God upon those who have refused to believe in who he is and what he has come to accomplish on the cross, the forgiveness of sins. Peter informs his readers that the Lord is coming back, and when he does, he will destroy the earth. Now, that doesn't seem like a very exciting prospect. If you're on the earth and it's going to be destroyed, that's not good news. I think the desire would be, if that's going to happen, how do I escape that? Well, we know that there's the escape. We looked at that in 1 Thessalonians, when the Lord Jesus will take his church up out of this world in what we call the rapture of the church. We know that's coming, but he is coming, and if you don't know him, he's going to destroy the earth, and as we see in this text, they literally burn it up with intense heat. It is because of us having this knowledge about the future that Peter has now the expectation. If you know that the Lord Jesus is returning and you know he's going to take, uh, he's going to punish those who have not believed on him. If you know that, then how ought that do what? How should that affect your daily living? You should be living with the mindset that the Lord Jesus is returning to punish those who do not follow his son or follow Jesus Christ. And so we see this in verse 11. Notice what he says. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, not that they might be destroyed, they will be destroyed. This is as certain as anything can be certain. He will come and destroy the world in this way. And because of this, what sort of people ought you to be in what? In holy conduct, in what you do. Now, I wonder how often we think about the things we do in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return and punish those who do not follow him. We are to be a people. What sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Notice how Peter links the knowledge of God's judgment, that which we know, that now must change the way we think and live our lives. To put this another way, the more convinced we are of the Lord's second coming to judge the earth, the more committed we will be to live a holy, a separate, a distinct, a completely uh, different lifestyle from the world. That's this conduct and godliness, of course, which is increasing in Christ-likeness. We see this push of Peter challenging believers to press on. He says, go further. Wherever you are, go more. It is Paul's exhortation. You, we've heard it so much, right, in 2022. The theme is what? Excel still more. Wherever you at, where you're at with your, with your walk in, with the Lord Jesus Christ, now push further. Go beyond where you've been. Beloved, we will never attain to a certain level of godliness and then be able to say, I've arrived. I'm here. Because I've preached in a pulpit for 27 years, I have arrived. I have all the knowledge I need. I don't have to grow in godliness anymore. And you would say, uh, get that man out of the pulpit. None of us have arrived. 
We are to push further. We are to grow in the grace of godliness. When it says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of of Jesus Christ, that means to grow and to keep on growing and to never stop growing and never be content if you find yourself not growing. Always be moving forward. In 2 Peter 3.14, we read this. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent, which we define as applying maximum effort. Be diligent to be found in him, how? In peace, spotless and blameless. That's on us. Now, we are made spotless and blameless by Christ and Christ alone. But we know we've been made spotless and blameless as we see him working in us the removal of sin and the desire to live and follow after Jesus Christ. Believers are to be diligent, we've read that, but vigilant in their pursuit of godliness. According to passages like this, we need to remember that godliness does not just happen. I wish it did. I wish you could just stick your Bible on your head at night and it would just all magically go in there and you get up the next day and you're, you're more godly than the day before. But it doesn't work that way. We must apply maximum effort. We must be diligent. It takes effort. It takes study. It takes practice. And then you do it over and over and over again. In Psalm 63, 8, David makes this profound statement of resolve. Listen to what David said. Psalm 63, 8, he says, My soul clings to you. My soul clings. That the Hebrew word for cling means to follow hard. It means to hotly pursue in order to capture and to hold. You are to be like the hunter after the prey when it comes to clinging to God. God becomes your prey in this picture. You don't want anything else but him. And your goal is to capture that that relationship and to hold on to it. And so I ask you, believer, are you pursuing the Lord like that? Are you clinging to him like that? Are you striving for him like that? That is a striving for Christ-likeness. I must have Jesus. There is no other. Jesus is my solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. If there was something else that looked good, I dare not trust it. But I wholly and solely lean on Jesus' name. I strive for Christ. Well, in addition to striving for Christ which we see there in chapter 3, I would submit to you that Peter will emphasize the shunning of false teachers and practices. We are to shun false teaching and its practices. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter deals with the subject of false teachers. And what was the main problem of false teachers? What, What is it? Can I tell you real simply? What is it that false teachers do not do that Peter is emphasizing believers are to do. False teachers do not grow in the true knowledge of God. They do not grow in their knowledge of Christ. Instead of striving for Christ's likeness, false teachers seek to live in the sensuality of sin. Let's face it, sin looks good. Sin is enticing. Sin can be subtle. Sin can be that which just overwhelms the desires of your flesh. 
We noted last week that 2 Peter 2 is the only chapter that contains not one command. Another unique feature I submit to you about 2 Peter 2 is that there is only one verse that mentions what these false teachers were actually teaching. I mean, you're like, today we're like, let me tell you about uh, the false teaching of Mormonism, and I'm going to go out and tell you why Mormonism is wrong, or I can lay out whatever other secular humanism or whatever the issue is, we lay it out. Peter doesn't do it that way. He doesn't lay out and say, let me tell you what all the false teachings are. There's only one verse where he, he mentions what the false teachers are actually teaching, and the other 21 verses are descriptions, listen to this, we're going to look at them, of the wicked behavior of false teachers. So he's challenging, Peter's challenging us to be those who are growing in our godliness, and the one of the ways he shows us how to do this is by showing us how false teachers do not live and practice godliness. That is his emphasis in these verses. And even in the one verse where Peter does address the content of the false teaching of these teachers, it is broad and general. Note it with me, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, and here it is, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So all Peter tells us about their teaching is what? They're heretical. They're not true to the orthodox teaching, and it causes them to do what? To deny the master. Beloved, one of the sure marks, sure marks of basically a cult is if it denies any aspect of the deity or the person of Jesus Christ, guess what? It's a false teaching. And it's a true characteristic of every Christian cult that there's somehow a diminishing of Jesus Christ. So this is all we're giving, given. And the remaining 21 verses simply describe their ungodliness. And it might strike us as odd that Peter does not specifically address the error of the false teachers, but rather describes the way in which they live their lives. This is intentional. The goal of Peter is to call believers to do what? Grow in godliness grow in the pursuit and practice of godliness. And here in chapter 2, Peter says, when you take the teaching of the false teachers, notice how they don't grow in, the knowledge, in, the, uh, uh, in their practice of the truth. They're not pursuing the truth of the knowledge of Christ, therefore they're not growing in the godliness of Christ. Put it another way, what you believe will always impact how you live. What you believe will always impact the way you live. If your life is wrong, if you are here this morning and you know that there's something wrong in your life, you know you're not following, it means your beliefs are wrong. You're not believing the correct things. Look with me at Galatians chapter 5, if you would, and just keep your finger here in in 2 Peter, Galatians chapter 5, we're going to look at a couple of very familiar verses, but I want to point out to you the, the continuity of Scripture. In Galatians 5, we have, beginning in verses 22 and 23, a very familiar phrase, very familiar passage. Uh, we are presented with the fruit of the Spirit. These are the, qual the characters and qualities that the Scriptures say will be present in you if you are being guided by the Spirit. So if you want to know, do I have the spirit of Christ in me? Are you experiencing 
these qualities. Now, they may be to varying degrees. You may find that one of these qualities is, is not as robust as you would like it to be. But if you find yourself not experiencing any of these, there's a question. If you are not experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, you have a problem. Those things should be impacting your life. Those things should be changing your, the way that you live. Now, just go up a few verses uh, from that, in beginning in verse 19. And in verse 19, if you're not experiencing the fruit of the Spirit as presented there, do I have love? Do I have joy? Do I have peace? Do I have these qualities? Do I have self-control? He says, look at the deeds of the flesh. Try to see if any of these are the most characteristic of your life. And notice in verses 19 through 21 what P, uh, Paul includes there. They include immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Anybody practicing sorcery? Okay. But notice where it goes here. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and one or more of such things, he says there's even more such things. Beloved, if you examine your life and one or more of these are the primary direct, direction of your life, you're operating under the flesh. You're acting the same way that we'll see the false teachers act. It's a warning sign. It's telling you you're not living correctly. Something is wrong. You are in error. So let's go back to Second Peter. Peter sets out to demonstrate how these false teachers live their lives in order to prove that they are not right in what they believe and what they teach because what you believe will affect how you live and how you live is a direct, has a direct correlation to what you believe. Let's follow along beginning in verse 2. We're just going to look at these very quickly. False teachers and their practices are described as those who, what? They follow their sensuality. They are those moved and motivated by their earthly senses and desires. They are people who prefer to do the deeds of the flesh. They follow after what their flesh desires rather than what the word of God and the spirit of God declares. In verse 3, they are those who are motivated by what? By their greed. They are more desirous of money or material things. That is their God. Dropping down to verse 10, Peter describes them as those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt, corrupt desires, meaning they engage themselves in their sin. They love their sin. They want to keep their sin. They'll do whatever they can to maintain that aspect of their lives. In verse 10, they're described again as those who despise authority. That is, they refuse to heed the reproof or rebuke of another. If a brother in Christ comes along and says, here's what God's word says, that's despised. I'll find another path by which to follow for myself. They are described next as daring. What does that mean? Well, it just sounds like what it is. These are people who are living on the edge. They're always on, on the cusp of something. They're pushing the extremes of their sin. They need to experience more of it. They are called self-willed. That is, they're pursuing their own will rather than God's. They are also called those who do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. I, this one just kind of blows me away, right? I, 
I haven't come in contact with an angel. If I did, I hope I don't revile the angel because even as Peter says here, you, they don't understand how powerful these creatures really are. Such people are bold and fearless when it comes to approaching that which they ought to fear. Remember in our study of Jude how Michael, Michael is the great archangel of God. He is, uh, uh, I mean, the moment we see Michael, we will be abundantly impressed, okay? And, and even as John in the book of Revelation uh, comes across some angels and he bows down to them and the angels are quick to say what? Don't bow down. We're not God. But John, who walked with Jesus was so overwhelmed in the angelic presence that he bowed down. Yet these folks, because sin is so irrational, they believe that they can reprove them. But not even Michael, the great archangel, disputed with the devil. But even as great and powerful as Michael is, he did not, per, according to Jude 9, he did not pronounce a railing judgment against the devil, but left such rebuking to who? To the Lord, because the Lord is greater than all. These false teachers had no such fear in rebuking the demonic world and revealing their arrogance. In verse 12, they are described in the very uh, uh, flattering terms of what? They are unreasoning animals. They have no true conscience of what is right and wrong. The, he's describing people, people that maybe you and I uh, work with. They could be people that we have, I pray we, if we've read some of these books, we've thrown them away. They have no conscience of right and wrong. Verse 13, they are those who are doing wrong and counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. This speaks of their brazenness. You know, there used to be a time when some of the things we're seeing being propagated in our culture, that was done in, in dark alleys. That was done behind closed doors. You, you might have heard that maybe something like that was taking place, but you didn't see it. But now it's out in the light. It's right before us. We're seeing Second Peter being lived out in our culture today. Their ungodliness is further described in verse 14, notice, as having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. There's no pursuit of godliness. There's no growing in the grace of godliness. They refuse to follow the example of godly Job who made a covenant with his eyes not to gaze upon a woman lustfully from Job 31.1, but rather they entertain those prospects. They look for them. These are those who are enticing unstable souls. They are the ones seeking out the weakest of, of, the, of those in the church in their attempt to ensnare them in sin. They are those who, who Peter describes as having a heart trained in greed. That is, they are well versed in their deceptive pursuits. In verse 15, their lack of godliness is revealed in that their greed is the same kind as Balaam. If you haven't been reading in the Old Testament recently, or maybe you are, you'll get to the account of Balaam. We look at him in Jude, but Jude, uh, Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness, and he was willing to do whatever he thought he could do to, uh, to earn those wages, being nothing more than a prophet for hire who sought to tickle the ears of those uh, around him for the, uh, for the exchange of just a few coins. 
In verse 18, their ungodliness is revealed in how they speak out arrogant words of vanity. It's they're, they're speaking proudly of themselves. Look at me. Look how great I am. Look at you. Who does it sound like? Maybe Nebuchadnezzar. Is this not Babylon the great, which I have, uh, have put together? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He was brought down rather quickly. They are, it says, enticed by fleshly desires, using the lust of the flesh in order to gain a following. That's the easy thing to do. You want to build a church? Man, just appeal to the people's flesh. You know, put on all the flashy shows and the lights and, and sing the exotic music and all of those things, and you'll get people to come. And you have to keep doing it if you want them to keep coming. Again, it speaks, it, these are those who seek to entice those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, meaning they go after the weakest people seeking to entrap them. In verse 19, they are described as slaves of corruption, being so ensnared by sin that they are des uh, described, uh, uh, so ensnared uh, by sin that they're nothing more than slaves of sin. In verse 20, they are those who are, I, I love the word, entangled in the defilements of the world. They are like a fly caught in the spider's web. They're caught by their sin, and there's no escape. I don't know if you've ever watched the time lapse of a spider who gets his, his prey, and it's a gruesome way to die. I'm glad there's no big spiders around. Again, Peter devoted this entire chapter not to identify what false teachers teach, but rather what? How they live out their lives. What we believe about God affects how we live for God. And so we find that the predominant error of these teachers is that they have failed to live, failed in their lives. They have not grown in godliness. They have not sought the knowledge of the truth that's required to live properly for God. They have failed to grow in the grace of godliness and are, in fact, going in the complete opposite direction, 180 degrees away from God. Rather than striving for the likeness of the Savior, they are striving for the likeness of sin. Rather than love God and hate sin, they have come to reverse that and as they love sin and hate God. Notice in verse 20 that, uh, that it is not that they have no knowledge of God. These aren't people who are ignorant of the truth. Peter tells us that they have some knowledge of Jesus. They have enough of a knowledge that would help them escape the defilements of the world, but because they are not growing in the grace of godliness, they fall prey to their own sinful ways. And Peter says that that state is even worse than if they had never known the truth at all. Beloved, take heed to their predicament. Such people fail in their lives because they first failed in their theology. You are all theologians. Theology is not a bad word. Doctrine is not a bad word. You all have theology and doctrine. The only question I have for you is, is it biblical or is it not? Is it true doctrine or is it false doctrine? Those are the only options that we have. Rather than come to the word of God to see the behavior, their behavior is sinful, they twist God's word to make it say something it does not say. And so we see that taking place in our culture as increasing numbers of not the world, not just the world, increasing numbers of people in the church have decided that the Bible has nothing to say against homosexuality, has 
uh, something that allows people then to continue in their sin. Oh, we just got to love them. That, that the most important thing is love. No, the most important thing is God's truth. And we speak the truth in love because we don't desire people to live an eternity in hell separated from God. And so such people develop a theology that permits their sin. This is the way of the false teacher. And it's running rampant, not only in the culture, but in the church. Believers must shun and avoid such teaching. But how? How are we to shun and avoid such teaching? I mean, it's everywhere. What are we to do? Well, that brings us to our final point, that we are to stand upon God's word. If we would grow in godliness, we must stand upon the word of God. When, when we believe what God has proclaimed, there will not be wiggle room for us to, to twist scripture. We notice that Peter, notice what he says at the end of chapter 1 in verse 20. He writes, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It's not left up to us to say what we think it means. It is what God has said. We need to get to the heart of what God has proclaimed. It is God who inspires men to write, inspired men to write scriptures. And so it is God's own interpretation that we are to seek, not our own. Beloved, scripture is never to be according to our own interpretation, but upon the clear statements of God and his will. As we strive to know the truth of God's word, here's the promise. We will grow in godliness. You will know what your God delights in. You will love what he loves. You will hate what he hates. You will do as he says, and you will shun. You will shun the false teachers in their practice. Let us note how Peter stresses this, though, again in chapter 1. Look with me at 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 7. I, I've heard, by the way, that some are setting out to memorize 2 Peter. That's very good, and I think you're going to get a good jump because you're going to hear some of these verses so often. It should just come to you naturally, right? First, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Now, for this very reason also, based on all the promises of God, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance. Notice the progression here. And in your perseverance, godliness acting in a godly fashion in your godliness brotherly kindness how we begin to treat one another and in our brotherly kindness love that self-sacrificing uh, expression of the very action and heart of God towards us for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in those verses there are seven qualities of the godly that are to be pursued that are to be clung to with all that we have by faith Beloved, the pursuit and practice of each one of those qualities leads us in the direction of godliness. Do you want to know how to be more godly? Put these qualities into practice by the grace of God. As we grow in godliness, we increase in our knowledge of God. As we increase in our knowledge of God, applying what we know, we grow in the grace of godliness. They work hand in hand. Note with me again in verse 10 where Peter says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will, I love this promise, 
You will never stumble. How many of you have stumbled in your Christian faith, right? What does it mean? It means you failed to practice one of these things. As long as you practice these things, you are given the promise you will never stumble. Most literally, this reads, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and electing you. How can we know if we are one of God's elect? What does Peter say? Practice these things. Pray diligently. God, help me to know you and to know your word and to know your way and then have that affect the way that I live each and every day. Always pursue the practice of these things. Always pursue moral excellence. Always pursue the knowledge of Christ. Always pursue self-control. Always pursue perseverance. Always pursue godliness and brotherly kindness. And always, always pursue love. Why? For as long as you pursue and practice these things, you will be all the more certain that you are one of God's chosen one of God's elect, beloved by God, on your way to heaven, clothed not in the righteousness of your own, but in the righteousness of Christ, brought to you by the blood of Christ. Beloved, our personal increase in the practice of such godliness is the sign that we are the elect. It's how I know. If I'm not practicing these things, I should be concerned. Peter wants this church to do what? Grow in the grace and knowledge, in the practice of godliness and the knowledge of Christ. How do we know? Because those whom God chooses, God changes. Are you being changed by God? Peter would t- or Paul would tell the Philippians to work out your salvation, how? With fear and trembling. <clears throat> I... There's, there's nothing more terrifying than the thought of spending eternity apart from God. So there should be a fear and trembling that I want to know that I'm saved. And Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then in the next verse, verse 13 of chapter 2, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So you, how do I know that God is at work in me? Because I work out my salvation. I don't work out my salvation to earn it. I work out my salvation to demonstrate to me that I know that I am saved. That's what Peter is getting after. What does all of this change look like? It looks like becoming more like Christ. How important is it to grow in godliness, beloved? How, is it, how important is it that you and I be manifesting these very qualities, these very characteristics that demonstrate the calling and choosing of God on us? We'll look at verse 11 where Peter writes, 2 Peter 1.11, For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be what? Abundantly supplied to you. The entrance is before you. All you need to do is delight in that as you walk with Christ and follow his ways, you see the pathway to heaven as being abundantly open, abundantly supplied to you. How do you enter the kingdom of Christ, some may ask? We enter as redeemed sinners, those who, are, who come to know more and more of what it means to live a godly life. 
I once was lost, but now I'm found, as John Newton wrote. I once was one who did not desire the things of God, but as I said, Lord, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. That changes you. You are born again. You are changed. You are converted. You are regenerated. And the thing that we ought to desire and pray for as a church, how is my life and how are my brothers and sisters' lives reflecting the reality that I am regenerate, that I am born again, that I am, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says what? I am a new creature in Christ, the old has passed away. Behold, new things, delightful things, godly things have come. Let me remind you that it is not these things that save us. As we'll come to see in our study of Second Peter, the righteousness that we possess is not our own. Look at verse 1. We've worked our way all the way back now, right? In verse 1, what is the substance of our faith? the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When God saves a soul, I make you this promise, not because I can make it, because the word of God says it. When God saves a soul, he sanctifies it. He sets it apart for his use. He wants that soul to look like Jesus, to act like Jesus. Have you trusted that Jesus is your righteousness? Have you been saved? Have you been redeemed? That Jesus has saved you not so much so that you would live for yourself, but rather for him. Would you confess yourself to be a sinner in need of a savior? For if you do, and for those of us who have, then the words of 2 Thessalonians is true, that God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. Beloved, our sanctification, our becoming like Jesus, our growing in godliness, that is the path of salvation. That's what Peter is pressing in this letter. And so may we resolve by the grace of God to do those things that would allow us to grow in godliness to the glory of let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the, the emphasis of Peter who desires for the churches to be those filled with people who desire to know the truth and to grow in godliness. Father God, help us to be that people who grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be resolved to that task. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.